welcome to Spiro Avenue. And now, your host, Justin Spiro. Hello out there, I am Justin Spiro, and thank you for joining us on Spiro Avenue. Today, we live in a time of angry mobs engaging in dangerous groupthink. And we all see this every day now in 2017. Somebody makes a mistake, and suddenly it's public shaming time. And this was really no more apparent than in 2013, a woman named Justine Sacco, pretty much an average citizen, only had about 100 followers on her Twitter account, a private citizen, certainly not famous. On her Twitter account, she's hopping on right before a trip to Africa back in 2013, and she says, quote, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white, end quote. Not a very good joke, certainly not creative, uh, certainly at best racially insensitive and just idiotic, granted. So Justine Sacco gets on the airplane. She has an 11-hour flight to Africa. She turns her phone off as instructed by the flight attendant. She takes a nice long nap, has a great flight, watches, uh, who knows, chocola on the plane. She lands in Africa 11 hours later, wakes up, turns her phone back on. And she has about 87 notifications, including one saying that she has lost her job. And she has a pile of electronic death threats that would stack, if printed, probably higher than the current World Trade Center. So basically what we had with Justine Sacco is a really stupid joke that led to death threats, people wishing terrible things upon her family. One tweet, one tweet in particular read, quote, you are a horrible human being, and I hope your parents get cancer. Cancer for a really stupid joke. Cancer for the parents. That was the fate for Justine Sacco for, a, granted, a stupid tweet. And we saw this similar conduct from the angry mob public in 2012. Many of you have probably seen this clip. If not, I recommend you go see it. A man named Adam Smith videotapes himself going through a Chick-fil-A drive through he harasses the poor, meek employee at Chick-fil-A for their corporate stance on equal marriage rights for the gay community. This guy, Adam Smith, was essentially trying to be a social justice hero, standing up for equal marriage rights. Uh, probably not the best tactic to do that. Maybe write a letter to the corporate board and not attack somebody making like $7 an hour. Anyway, Adam Smith posts the tape. Sure enough, the angry mob turns on him. He was fired from a lucrative job. It took him years to find another one. The names of his young minor children were posted online, including the address of their school, their elementary school. And like Justine Sacco, Adam Smith received numerous death threats. Now, again, just like Justine Sacco, a very stupid act. We all think so. There's no question about it. You shouldn't be harassing a close to minimum wage employee. You shouldn't go to McDonald's and harass them for what the corporate board at McDonald's decided. It's, it's asinine. We all agree. But one tweet read, quote, Rotten hell, you miserable loser. I hope someone shoots you in the head, end quote. That was directed towards Adam Smith, who videotaped himself giving a Chick-fil-A employee a hard time. Stupid to be certain. Worthy of a death threat? Worthy of someone saying, I hope you get shot in the head? Probably not. And look, frankly, as a community, as a society in general, I think it is good to point out and decry poor behavior. I have no issue with Justin Sacco being called out, with Adam Smith being called out. I probably said something at the time. I didn't look up their kids. I didn't threaten to shoot them in the face. I didn't wish cancer on their family. But it is good for a community 
to say, look, this behavior is bad and decry it. So I have no issue with some outrage, certainly. I think Justine Sacco and Adam Smith deserve some degree of scorn. But death threats, people going after their parents and young children, the angry mob is really ruthless. It's really bad these days, especially the last five to ten years. Really, it is like an Internet version of Kaiser Soze from The Usual Suspects, where it's not enough to simply punish these wrongdoers. They must be destroyed entirely. They must be destroyed completely. And if their parents and young children are put in the line of fire, that ends justify the means. It's worth it to the angry mob. They don't care. There's no limit to it. They will destroy you and everyone you know entirely. And that brings us to today and the news of the day, and it's, it's really been big the last 48 hours. Former Michigan State football player Jermaine Edmondson is suing former Michigan State basketball player Draymond Green for an alleged incident in July of last year. Now, to date, we really only have Edmondson and his girlfriend's account of what happened, and we can kind of piece together from that and what Green hasn't said a reasonable timeline and, and facts list of what occurred. I mean, we can do a pretty good job, but according to Edmondson and his girlfriend's account, last July, Draymond Green is in town. He's in town to attend a wedding. He's a groomsman with a couple of his friends who are also like him, big guys. He ends up going out to celebrate the weekend festivities at Rick's American Cafe in East Lansing. And while there, he literally runs into Edmondson at the bar, like bumps into him a little bit hard. Maybe not on purpose, who knows, but ran into him. Edmondson asked for an apology. He says, hey, man, you just, you know, bowled me over, you know, like, come on, you know, not a watch where you're going, but yay, you know, give me a little acknowledgement that you just bowled me over in the bar. Allegedly, again, according to Edmondson's account, Draymond Green says, quote, I know N-words like you. I pay for N-words like you scholarships, end quote. I don't think Draymond Green said N-words. Edmondson, from this point on, is choked and pinned against the wall by two members of Green's entourage, who I guess were also in this wedding that he was in town to celebrate. And suddenly, chaos ensues. Edmondson's girlfriend is allegedly in the middle of trying to break this up, choked as well. Some yelling goes on, people get in the middle, it gets broken up, and this incident for that night is essentially over. So what you have is Edmondson and his his girlfriend allegedly choked by two dudes bigger than both of them for nothing, for no reason. Again, allegedly. So you fast forward to the next night, Edmondson bumps in the green again at Conrad's Corner, which is like a block away. It's really on the same block as Rick Therney's Lansing. Late night, basically junk food spot there at Michigan State. He sees Draymond Green. He approaches him, seeking an apology on behalf of his girlfriend, allegedly goes up to Draymond politely and says, hey, look, man, I regret last night that it happened, but you know your, your boy's choked out my girlfriend. I don't care what they did to me, but they choked out my girlfriend. This isn't right. Like, can you just apologize? Non-threatening, didn't get in his face and hit him, nothing. Now, according to Edmondson and his girlfriend's account, Edmondson got punched in the face by Draymond Green right after this. Now, again, that's Edmondson's account, so that's what we have. What we do know for a fact is that shortly after this incident, Draymond Green is arrested and about 10 days later pleads guilty, frankly, to a much less severe charge of a noise violation. I don't know if he grunted really loudly while punching Edmondson in the face. I don't know how that transition from assault and battery down to a noise violation makes sense, but that's what happened. So here's, here's a key piece of evidence, and this is something that we know from the lawsuit to be true. Draymond Green's friend sent Edmondson a text message shortly after, a couple days after the incident, saying, quote, 
hey, bro, don't press charges. Please talk to Day-Day, that's Draymond. He will give you bread. Let's meet, bro, end quote. And there were similar text messages of this in the, in the days ensuing from other friends of Draymond Green trying to talk Edmondson into silence, out of a lawsuit, and then basically to taking hush money to just let this thing go away. So that's what we have right now. That's what's on the table. Now, who knows how much of Edmondson's account is true. There's always two sides. that You never hear things completely line up, and that is a given. And I'm sure we will get Draymond's side here in short order from his attorneys. But we don't know how much is true, but we do know that at no point so far has Draymond Green alleged that Edmondson was violent. And we do know for a fact, actually, that Green went through an intermediary or multiple intermediaries and appears to have tried to buy Edmondson's silence. So, I mean, what does that tell you? you got to use your brain a little bit here. It doesn't take a rocket scientist when you have two, three, four of Draymond Green's boys messaging Edmondson saying, look, man, like, don't do anything, we'll pay off. Now, if Edmondson was totally in the wrong, does that happen? I mean, possibly. It's not like hush money has never been sent to a, a false accuser, so we'll make that clear, but probably not. I mean, we're guessing that there's something there, and frankly, this is purely speculation on my part, and this is just my guess, but I find Edmondson to be pretty credible. His story makes a lot of sense. He has text messages, the proof of them, people trying to bribe him to shut him up. Why would you do that? Why would you have those text messages sent? Why would you offer him money? If there's nothing there. And Draymond Green was arrested for the assault, charged with a later crime, but still charged initially, uh, or still arrested initially uh, upon that uh, incident occurring. So, I mean, there's enough there to be concerned about Draymond Green's involvement. Now, since the arrest report came out last summer, just think of this experience for Jermaine Edmondson. It's been a nightmare for the guy. He was constantly harassed on campus. He had to leave Michigan State. He's been the target ever since of a massive cyberbullying campaign for Michigan State alums, Michigan State students, people from around the country. And all for what? What did the guy do? Because he got punched in the face by a six foot seven, 250-pound NBA player after bumping into him and asking him for an apology? Now, at least Justine Sacco and Adam Smith actually made a mistake that people overreacted to. But what was Edmondson's sin here? I mean, really, if you look at the evidence, it sure seems like he was a victim and probably the only victim other than his girlfriend, who's also in the lawsuit, by the way. So, you know, it's so easy for everyone out there to rip on Edmondson. I saw this repeatedly in the Facebook group for this website and this podcast. I've seen it repeatedly in my, uh, my own family, Michigan State alums, saying what a coward Jermaine Edmondson is. And you know, I'll tell you why it's easy to rip on Edmondson. I mean, I'll tell you why. He was a disappointment as a player at Michigan State, and Draymond Green is a school legend and a two-time NBA champion. So any undesirable attention brought to Draymond Green is going to be resented by the MSU fan base. It's the same reason why the Penn State fans and all those idiot sycophants in Happy Valley went to every length to defend Joe Paterno no matter what evidence came out. And I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't know what Paterno knew or didn't know, but it was a blind devotion to Joe Paterno because he was a legend. And you're seeing that play out here. Jermaine Edmondson was a disappointment at Michigan State. Draymond Green is a legend, a two-time NBA champion, yada, yada, Final Fours, all that jazz. So the fans are automatically going with the more accomplished Michigan State hero. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear. It's the same logic when no one would report the town pedophile in 1950. No one wants to rock the boat. 
Victims back then were discouraged from coming out. Jermaine Edmondson is basically that kid now. It's like, yeah, you got punched in the face, choked out, allegedly. But you better not say anything because it's Draymond Green. I mean, what, what logical world are we living in? This is nuts. So for deciding to file this lawsuit, people are calling Jermaine Edmondson a, a bitch? They're calling the entire lawsuit a shameful money grab? Many MSU alums, including Darian Harris, who was on this show last, last time, two days ago, has suggested essentially that Edmondson is a traitor. What cause did Edmondson betray? What kind of a person would allow themselves and their girlfriend to be choked out by two giant dudes at a bar all because Draymond Green is good at basketball? How does that make sense? Would you tolerate this? I mean, a message to everyone ripping Edmondson, the next time you and your significant other are attacked, choked, and punched in, a, in the face at a bar without any provocation, then you can criticize this lawsuit. And that doesn't even factor in the 12 months of constant harassment the guy's received. So if we're to believe his story, and I personally find him credible, and that's up to you to believe 50% of it, 100%, whatever you want to do. That's up to you. I believe it's at least 90% true based on the witnesses, based on what evidence we have, the, the attempted payoff, et cetera, and the arrest. But if we're to believe him even halfway, and we all know it's a fact that he's been harassed. I mean, anyone out there can just read that. Just look up the guy's name. All this happened to this poor guy. He's been bombarded with harassment for 12 months, and everyone's mad at him for filing a lawsuit. What would you do if this happened to you? It's pretty clear what's happening here. The mob favors Draymond Green because he was the far better MSU soldier. That's it. I mean, that's your entire story. If Jermaine Edmondson was a Heisman Trophy winner and got punched out by Tom Herzog, do you think this would be the same narrative? No. People would be like, what the hell's wrong with that seven-foot gumpy white center that punched out our, our Charles Woodson? That's what the narrative would be if the situation was exactly the same with the exact same set of facts. But people are bowing down to the deity, bowing down to the hero that is Draymond Green. And look, Draymond Green's the one with the rap sheet in this whole thing. He's the one with the reputation of being a bully, kicking players in the groin, getting suspended, endangering the careers of other players, costing his team an NBA championship in all likelihood. Where's Edmondson's bad history? I mean, before this incident, he was mostly known for getting torched by wide receivers every Saturday afternoon. Maybe a criminal act in the eyes of some Michigan State fans, but certainly not in the eyes of law enforcement. So, look, I don't know the whole story, and neither do you. But before you jump all over Edmondson, think about what he may have experienced in this. And would you have taken this line down? Would you let somebody punch you and choke you and choke your girlfriend and then endure 12 months of harassment because he wouldn't apologize, the guy wouldn't apologize for this and squash it? Would you take that line down? Would you not sue? And if you're not going to sue and you're saying, oh, I'm going to react, what are you going to do? Shoot Draymond Green? I mean, this, this is the responsible way to respond to this. So it's like these people criticizing Jermaine Edmondson, calling him a bitch. So you want him to either do nothing or you want him to, to go gang violence on the guy? I mean, what do you want from the guy? So you just, in general, beware of the angry mob. Be very wary of joining it because it can and will bring out not only the worst of human emotion, but it brings out the worst of our ability to assess situations logically. Does Edmondson deserve this? And is he really a, quote, bitch 
for reacting this way. If these things happened as outlined, as alleged, or even half, I would do the same thing. And I think a lot of you guys would too. And I hope it never happens to anyone where you happen to end up in a bar fight with a guy who's an MSU, MSU legend and is beyond reproach. But don't be a Penn State fan not willing to criticize Paterno because he's a deity. You have to be very careful with that stuff. It, it doesn't make any sense that we're demonizing the victim here. And I expect to hear a lot of crap for this. I, I talked to 10 guys about this, and they all think I'm wrong. That's fine. I think I'm on the side of truth and the side of logic here. So be careful with the mob stuff. It's just, it's really bad stuff. And I, I hope people stop picking on this kid. I mean, it, it, enough's enough. I think he's been through enough. So anyway, that is it for our opening segment. And we are going to move on. If we can get Darrell Summers on the phone, we had a little trouble earlier. We're going to try him again. Uh, so we're going to be back in a second, hopefully, with Darrell Summers. Now we transition to our esteemed guest, former MSU basketball player Darrell Summers. Played at MSU from 2007 to 2011. Played in two Final Fours at Michigan State, 2009 and 2010. Darrell Summers, thank you for joining us. Uh, how you doing, Justin? Thanks for having me. Well, we're doing well. You know, our opening segment tackled the Draymond Green, Jermaine Edmondson legal situation. I don't know if you've been following that, but you played three years with Draymond Green at Michigan State. Can you tell us a little bit about what he was like as a teammate and as a person? Is it a, a true that he's a bully? That's sort of the reputation. I mean... Me and Draymond, we always had a, a competitive relationship. You know, he always came in, worked hard, you know, and gave his all on the basketball court, you know, and he was always about winning, you know. So he he was always a guy you could look at, and you know every game he's going to compete. He's going to compete to win. Yeah, I, I think that uh, some of those teams you guys had were as tough as I can remember, certainly in the Izzo era. I've argued for a long time that the 2009 team had the hardest NCAA tournament path in history. You had the two-seed defending national champion Kansas, first overall seed Louisville, one-seed UConn, and of course that basically NBA team in in UNC. You guys beat Bill Self, Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, then you had to face Roy Williams. Just when you think back about that 2009 tournament, what sticks out to you in that whole run, that experience? Oh, uh, man, the, the experience was, was big for me, man, just because we was able to play in the Final Four in Detroit. You know, and me growing up being a Detroit kid, you know, that was just a big a big stage. And to be able to have it so close to home, to have people, you know, the family and friends, to be able to come and, you know, celebrate that moment with you. You know, that was big for me. And, and of course, being in a position to advance to a national championship. And, you know, if you type in your name on YouTube right now, just type in Darrell Summers, the first suggested entry is Darrell Summers Dunk UConn. Obviously, you had probably the, the most famous dunk in MSU history over Stanley Robinson in that Final Four in Detroit. I mean, just take us through that play. Did you notice the crowd's electric response? What was going through your minds at that moment? Yeah, man, honestly, I was just trying to score a bucket, you know. That was, that was pretty much just trying to score a bucket to, to, you know, try to keep our foot on the gas. Excuse me, keep our foot on the gas as a team, you know, just trying to get that win at the end of the day. And, um, you know, I mean, of course, after the game, you know, it was it was <laughs> funny and uh, cool to see. But at that moment, you know, we, you just out there playing basketball, you know. Yeah, you, you seem pretty fired up after it. I know that that crowd was the loudest it had been that entire weekend during that moment. It was, it was definitely electric. 
obviously, you know, you guys follow the North Carolina. Uh, it's really a, a team that I think would have beaten just about anybody uh, in the last 10 years in that national title game. I mean, one of the best teams in the history of college basketball. But nonetheless, you guys come back in 2010. You end up going back to the Final Four, playing Butler. Your best friend at the time, anyway, Kalen Lucas, goes down in that first uh, first weekend. All MSU fans remember the finish where Draymond Green was slapped on the wrist by Gordon Hayward. There's no call. Uh, what they don't remember, really, is that you were the best player for MSU that day. I mean, there, there were multiple guys on the floor for Michigan State that had arguably one of their worst games in two months at that point. But yet you had 14 points, 10 rebounds, shot 50% from the field. Offense was hard to come by for everybody but you that day. The rest of the team just kind of seemed in a funk. Why do you think you guys lost that game? Was it was it something Butler was doing? Were you guys just off? What was the deal? I mean, first of all, uh, Kay, Kaylin, that's still my, my guy today. You know, man, I'm still like family, you know. That's still my guy. But, um, no, I mean, that in that moment – I mean, I think that's one thing that was always great about our team. We just we could get things from multiple places, you know, not necessarily having to depend on one guy or two guys or three or four guys. You know, everybody just come in and play whatever their role is to the to the best they can, you know. So I don't know. I think um, I don't know. I feel like. Uh, Maybe they was just better than us on that day. I don't know, but I, most definitely everybody gave it they all. Everybody gave it they all and was competing to win. Well, the the play that really haunts me and many others is that aforementioned non-call at the end with Gordon Haywards clearly slapping Draymond Green on the wrist. There's photo evidence of this. The video evidence backs it up. I mean, it was clearly a foul in your mind, right? I mean, I just think it's always been controversial. Some people say yeah, some people say no. You know, but at the end of the day, they didn't call it for us, you know, so we ended up falling short. Now, it's a tough call because if they call that, you know, Draymond Green is about a 70% shooter at the line, down one point. I mean, even if he splits the pair, you're tied. And for the record, I don't know if you recall, Gordon Hayward, after the game, was asked about it and kind of had a wry smile and essentially said something like, yeah, I may have gotten him. I mean, he basically admitted it. It's not even really too much in dispute. Was I, Tom Izzo seemed incredulous after the fact. Uh, Draymond Green had to hold him back at one point at the end of the game. Was that call ever discussed with Tom Izzo or, or Draymond Green or anyone in the locker room? Were you guys talking about that after the fact? Man, honestly, I can't even remember. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's I can't even, probably yeah, in I a days after remember. a loss. I mean, it was such a tough loss for you guys at the end. But Yeah, I'm sure, you know, it was a lot of different emotions in there just because we had lost. So, you know, I wasn't really too focused on – much you know you just kind of think about the loss and what you could have what could have went better or what we could have did better you know oh and it's interesting yeah you guys arguably your best player Kalen Lucas was obviously down and you basically lost by one point with Lucius having to intentionally miss that free throw at the end I I think you guys probably beat Duke if you advance and beat Butler in that game I think it was a, a B Duke team at best it wasn't a, sort of a vintage team did you have any feel did you even watch the national championship game and if you did I mean what did you think would have happened if you guys had gotten that far no, I didn't. I don't. I don't think I watched it. But uh, I mean, of course, how I feel if we have our full team with with the the best point guard in the country, I really believe you know that things may have been different. You know, and of 
course, we wish that we. I like our team when we full strength when we have all our weapons. Oh. You know, but we had to try to do the the best we could, and you know. But you know, it's another controversial thing. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, when your best player goes down and you still make it to the final four, the, the you're you know. Uh, yeah, it one you, point it away. Make you wonder, right? No, it's it's. I mean, I'm a Spartan alum, also. I mean, it kills me all the time. I I, I was I was right. there for for that game, and I uh, had a long drive back from Indianapolis to Detroit. But you know, it's it's tough. I I do think, uh, you know, to lose by basically one point to Butler when you don't even have your best player. Uh, obviously, the call at the end. I don't think it even comes down to that if Kalen Lucas is on the floor that night. Um, you know, it's nothing against Lucius, but you would just have Lucius coming off the bench playing against the second unit for Butler. It just changed the whole outlook for that team. And as far as you guys went, it was really impressive. I mean, losing Kalen is unbelievable. Obviously, you know, you guys go in your senior season the next year, preseason number two, you were actually the favorites in Las Vegas to win it all statistically. You end up going 19 and 14, you, you sneak into the tournament. I mean, there's a lot of talk about what happened that senior year. There were all sorts of rumors flying around with relations with Izzo, players upset. I mean, what do you think happened that senior year that you guys fell short of your expectations? I mean, honestly, in my opinion, I think I had to play better. You were better your junior year than your senior year, which is, I mean, you and Drew Knights are the two most common examples of that. I don't think I was playing to my full ability. And that's nobody's fault. That's my fault. You know, I think, you know, I I still think we had a a decent year. And we had, we played, we had some games. We played pretty well as a team. But I think to make the team, to have our team where it was supposed to have be, I think I needed to play better. Was there anything going on? I mean, obviously, you don't have to share anything you don't want to, but was there anything going on that you felt caused you to not play up to your standard or were you just kind of a funky year? Was there anything in particular bugging you? No, nah, it wasn't nothing in particular. Just some, some, some things I had to figure out. Yeah, I got you. Well, I, I've always argued, you know, there was a perception in town. I don't know if you're familiar with Mike Valenti at 97.1. I thought he was uh, way too hard on you and Kalen Lucas that senior year in terms of your legacy. I, I think things are in life a lot of, a lot about timing, and if you had had your senior year during your second year on campus and then the, you know your sophomore and junior year as your last two years, you would be remembered a lot more favorably. And not that you're not cherished now, but I, I think it's unfortunate that you had you know this senior year that was disappointing and some people lose sight of all that you accomplished and all that you contributed. You carried this team on your back to a Final Four, you are regional MVP in St. Louis. I want to play a quick clip of what Mike Vellani said a few years ago talking about you and Kalen in, in particular and, and just get your reaction to that if you think he's being a little unfair. Hold on one sec. Because to me, it's about the team or lack thereof. You got two guys on this team that are seniors that don't want to be there. Go home. You don't deserve to wear the jersey. Michigan State basketball is Michigan football, glory years. This is a brand. It's a product. It's a privilege to wear that jersey, not a right. And you got two guys on this team that are space cadets. Now, the whole team may stink, but it starts from the top. And your two senior leaders, a word I will never again use with Kalen and Durrell, are the biggest perpetrators and the biggest problem. I think he's a little harsh there. What do you say? (laughs) 
Ah, uh, man, that was... <laughs> You're thinking something. I, I, you're, you're, I can tell you're wondering if you should say it or not. I mean, I, I told you, I think it was a little harsh, especially all that you contributed to just kick your legacy out the window like you, you didn't carry the team hey, to a banner the year before. You know, one, you're, What do you only think? Thing of this? I, only thing I say to that is, man, me and Kay put in blood, sweat, and tears of work to try to perform the best we can for that for the green and white, no matter what nobody will ever say. And things ain't go how maybe they were supposed to go for whatever reason. But when it comes to putting in work and being ready to perform and play, we there every night, every morning, every afternoon. So, I mean, so, you don't you don't agree with his... All Okay. That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay, so obviously you, you would disagree with the fact that you didn't want to be there your senior year. I, I'll just make that leap on my own. I mean, many people theorize that that 2011 team was mad at Coach Izzo for kicking Corey Lucius off the team, suspending Chris Allen. I mean, were there any factors? Were those playing into the team or out at all? Was that an issue? Man, that was that was cold. that was that was the the decision that they ended up making. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure they they maybe got together as a a, a group and decided why they should make that decision. Uh, <laughs> that, that was not a decision that I made. Yeah. Well, how was your relationship with Izzo? I mean, now how was it when you were playing? Did you guys get along during your time there? Man, one thing. That I think get misunderstood about maybe my relationship with Coach Izzo. With me, I can speak for myself. When I first got there, I wanted them to hold me to a standard of being great, being amazingly great. So if you got to be on somebody tougher or or whatever to to try to help them, you can't you can't uh, knock that. That's what that's what you signed up for. That's what you asked. But you want to be great. You know, you got to be different. And I think Coach Izzo was holding me to a standard like that. Well, especially seeing the way you, you know, you had played at certain points. I mean, you were, I would say, the most athletic player on the team for a couple of years there and had flashes where you were, you know, as we've said, carrying the team. Do you still talk to Tom Izzo at all or anyone over there at the program? Uh, man, I, I've. Uh, I've been up there, uh, you know, a few times, and, and we had some talks and some conversations. I haven't talked to him recently, but no, I mean, I think everything is on the up and up. That's good. Um, you know, you're—I don't know if you're still following the team at all. I know you're playing a lot of professional ball in your post-college career. Just quick thoughts on on this upcoming season. Or, I mean, do you have high hopes, as much of the fan base does, for this next Michigan State team led by Miles Bridges? Oh uh, man, I think Miles Miles Bridges is a hell of a player, and um, I mean, of course, it's the green and white. I mean, you know, the, the coach Izzo, the staff, and, and just the way that, that we put in work. You know, we're gonna always be a team able to compete. You know, compete to win every night with with good chances. When so you- I mean, of course, it's high. I think it's high hopes, especially with him coming back. Yeah, it should be a, it should be a really good year. Just in general, when you reflect upon your MSU legacy, all that you accomplished there individually as a team, 
How do you feel about it? Are you happy with your MSU career? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with my MSU career. I mean, like I said, I, I think, and this is this is just me personally that I could I could have did a lot better, but I'm I'm happy with my career because we we did a lot of winning together, did a lot of learning, you know, a lot of learning, a lot of winning. You know, a lot of celebrating because we were doing a lot of winning. Yeah, know? a lot of net cutting uh, during your time there. And yeah, it's you <laughs> yeah. that Tennessee guy. Tennessee game you won by one point in the Elite Eight in 2010. You were dominant in that game. You guys had a great comeback against Northern Iowa the game before, uh, down to halftime around eight or ten points. I feel like, and you were great in that game. So I, I, I look at your legacy just as a Michigan State fan, very favorably, you know, the senior year as a, as a whole, maybe individually was disappointing, but it's hard to thumb your nose at a career with two final fours. You carried the team to one of those in 2010. So, I mean, for whatever it's worth, uh, I think you had a hell of a career. Darrell Summers, continued success. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your many contributions to Michigan State basketball. Um, you know, again, two final fours, multiple Big Ten championships, uh, an individual performance in 2010 after Kalen went down that is the reason why one of those Final Four banners hangs. So all in all, I would say a pretty darn good resume. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. That was Darrell yeah. Summers, Michigan State Basketball 2007-2011. Thank you so much, Tim, for joining us. And really, it's um, he was one of the more polarizing guys for some Michigan State fans. I, I meant what I said to him, I think – it's it's so easy to say oh that senior year was disappointing and you can't just throw out all that happened in the years prior you just can't do that he was a critical part of two final four teams um, as I said to him you know and he didn't seem to have any issue or denying it he carried this team in 2010 so you know it, it is very easy to sit back and say we're gonna throw out the baby with the bathwater throw out the whole career with that senior year the senior year was disappointing I mean he you know he shot uh, it's not in front of me I think 37 or 38 percent well down from his junior year totals he was just he was just off and to his credit he owned it and didn't blame anybody but himself and um, you know it's disappointing as the years it was I don't think it, it discounts the entire career so uh, we are going to move on to winners and losers uh, here in a second. Uh, but again, thank you to Darrell Summers, Michigan State basketball alum, for joining us on Spiro Avenue. And now it's time for the winners and losers for this week. We are going to start first, of course, with today's winner. I didn't get a chance to see him play. I was too busy winning. I won. <laughs> yeah, I won. I won. <sighs> All the years I've waited for this, years I've been coming up here. I've never won, never won once, and now I won. And that will intro us into Jennifer Hammond making her winners and losers debut on Spiro Avenue this week. Great job by Jennifer Hammond of Fox 2, uh, questioning Tigers manager Brad Ausmus after a disastrous loss on Saturday. Uh, bringing in Bruce Rondon, even though Jordan Zimmerman was still fresh and was frankly dealing against Houston. Of course, Brad Ausmus comes in with the early hook, brings out an on-fire Jordan Zimmerman, and puts in the absolute gas can that is Bruce Rondon. Bruce Rondon blows a two-run lead. Tigers lose 6-5. to five. What does Jennifer Hammond do? Jennifer Hammond remembers, unlike so many people in this town, that she is a journalist, and she gets right in Brad Ausmus's face and asks him a multitude of questions about his decision to pull Jordan Zimmerman prematurely. 
Brad Osmus gave multiple answers to the same question, and she just kept pushing until she got a satisfactory answer. Let's play the clip of Jennifer Hammond just peppering Brad Osmus in the post-game scrum. Was it some kind of a situation where you wanted to kind of give him, Bruce, a, a high-leverage situation and just kind of see where he was? Well, he's had plenty of high-leverage situations. He's pitched the eighth inning since he came back, which was back in San Diego and was that June? Well, since Wednesday night. Wednesday night was a blog game that has no effect on it. That was him trying to mop up and uh, and and save some some arms. So simple as that. That was that has nothing to do with when he normally pitches. He was pitching just to to cover the bullpen because there was guys who could use a day off. How frustrating is it though, Brad, when you guys kind of battle and you you have things going well and Zim had retired 13 of 15 and then to have Rondon come in and it just kind of blow up in in three batters. Oh, it's not, it's not a lot of fun. There's no question about that. I mean, we're here to try and win, and uh, you know, Zim had pretty much done his job. He'd gone seven innings. Uh, like I said, he was coming back around the lineup though another time, and uh, Rondon had done a, done a pretty decent job for us in the eighth inning. We go to Rondon. Hopefully, he cleans up the eighth, and uh, then we have Wilson in the ninth. Is that a little more though by the book than maybe using your gut? Like, hey, things are going well for him. He looks pretty good. My gut was it was time to get Zerman out of the game. It was your gut? Yeah. Did you see something during? No, I just know it's a, he's coming back on the lineup again. The more the hitters see guys, uh, the better chance they have against them. Zim did an outstanding job for seven innings. His, uh, uh, his job was done. His night was over. I know a lot of times JV will kind of say, you know what, I want to stay in. Let me face this guy. Did, did Zimmerman give any indication to you that he felt like he could keep going? Uh, I didn't ask him. Great job by Jennifer Hammond. I mean, really, the audio tells a lot. But if you could actually see the video that we pulled this from, Brad Osmus is just disgusted with the line of questioning. I mean, he was so frustrated, and I do think that comes through in his tone of voice. He kept looking over, I, I believe, in the direction of Trevor Thompson, who, I mean, really tosses more softballs than Jenny Finch, really one of the softer reporters in town, if you can even call him that. Conversely, Jennifer Hammond went down there, asked the tough questions. Brad Osmus continued to look in the other direction, acted disgusted, was sighing, had obviously a change in inflection in his voice, showing his frustration. And Jennifer Hammond kept pushing. I mean, that's that's good reporting. And really, you see that so seldomly down there. It was really, really rare when Jim Leland was the manager. Everyone down there was just terrified of Jim Leland. Ironically, of all people that really ever asked him any tough questions, it was typically Jeff Rieger of 97.1. Of all people, Jeff Rieger. But... Hey, Jennifer Hammond, she deserves a spot this week. I mean, that was just a good job. It's not like she went above and beyond the call of duty. That's just basic journalism. But unfortunately, that's a bar that we just don't see very much in this town or really anywhere anymore. Great job by Jennifer Hammond. And we will move on now to this week's loser. Loser! You're a loser! Are you feeling sorry for yourself? Well, you should be because you are dirt. You make me sick, you big baby. A little bit harsh, but nonetheless, here we are talking about our good friend Mike Valeni again. Now, Mike Valeni has been on both sides of the winner-loser aisle in this uh, segment of the show a few times now, and he just keeps popping up. Half of the reason is because he has a lot of audio posted, and it's great for us to poll, but also he has a lot of polarizing opinions, and unlike a lot of people in town, he has strong opinions. So a lot of times he's going to win, a lot of times he's going to lose. That's just how it goes with Mike Valeni polarizing guy but he is today's loser and I'm gonna let you listen to the clip in this clip Mike Valeni is talking about dwindling attendance throughout not just the Detroit sports teams but across the country and he's positing his theory as to why that is that fans are starting to check out roll the tape it is the 
one of the great American uh, scams, which is the publicly funded stadium. That has hurt a lot of people's ability to love teams. And I don't have to bring up all the examples, both locally and nationally. The point is that the, the racket of the publicly funded stadium, a lot of people have started to read. A lot of people look at it. They don't like it. Look, I'm not going to dispute Mike Vaughn's general point. I mean, certainly the taxpayer-funded stadium thing is a scam. It's been uh, repeated again and again that it's a, a loser for the city that does it. And you also have a major issue, I would argue, with federal subsidies going to these stadiums where you have taxpayers in, say, Alaska helping pay for Yankee Stadium to get federal subsidies. It doesn't make any sense, and it's a, a constant loser. But here's the issue. you got to remember the context of Mike Vaughn's comments here. Mike Vaughn was on the air giving his reasons why attendance is down and why fans are starting to check out. Do I think fans like the taxpayer thing? No. I, I think it drives a lot of people nuts, and I think it rubs a lot of people the wrong way, particularly in a city like Detroit that is very strapped for cash and is helping fund, to a great extent, Little Caesars Arena opening in just over a month here. I'm not disputing any of that, but is it really affecting attendance? This has been Mike Fellaini's crusade. This wasn't just an isolated comment in a vacuum. In a vacuum, it would not have made this segment. The reason I felt it was necessary to call this out is because Fellaini's been banging this drum for like three years now, saying that fans are so upset about tax subsidies for stadiums that they're starting not to go to games. And there's just no correlation here. There's none. And you just ask yourself, if you haven't been going to games lately, have you been skipping Tiger games that you would normally go to? Or are you going to not go to the Red Wing games that you would have otherwise gone to because Little Caesars Arena was partially funded by tax dollars? No. The decisions of fans whether or not to go to games is driven almost entirely by how good the product is on the field, on the ice, or on the court. And, you know, Valetti said in that clip, oh, I'm not going to get into all the examples. It's because you don't have any, Mike. There's no correlation to the argument you're making. And really, I will name examples. Look at Levi Stadium in San Francisco. That's the new San Francisco 49ers stadium that just opened up a year ago. And they had one of the worst attendance figures in the league. And their reported attendance figures were actually middle of the pack. But if you look at there have been multiple articles, you can look it up. They had a Thursday night audience that it was like 40% full in that stadium. Why? Because that team stinks. Now, that stadium, this is important, was funded entirely free of tax dollars or federal subsidies. So this is exactly what Valenti's talking about. Valenti wants every stadium to be privately funded by the ownership or investors. I'm okay with that. I don't disagree with that. I think he's right. But there's no correlation. If the fans in San Francisco... We're so worried about uh, the stadium being funded by tax dollars. Why did their attendance drop when, when they had the new stadium that was not funded by tax dollars? They went from a, a tax-funded stadium, taxpayer-funded stadium, I mean, to a privately-funded stadium, and the attendance dropped. Fans don't care. What happened? The 49ers collapsed. They stink, and their attendance went down. And you look at Yankee Stadium. Yankee Stadium has the most taxpayer dollars behind it in any sport in the country. That's a fact. They've received the most subsidies, the most taxpayer funding support. And it's really not even close. Yankee Stadium's packed. Their attendance is way up. Why is their attendance way up? They've been kind of stinky for a couple years, relatively speaking. 
And now they're in the middle of a pennant race. They're adding pieces. It's exciting. They have Aaron Judge hitting 75 home runs this year. So there's no correlation there. You have the stadium out in San Francisco completely privately funded, and they're drawing flies. There's pictures of that stadium in the middle of a game where nobody is there. You can look that up. People don't care. The San Francisco 49ers stink, so they're not going to go. The Yankees, completely backed by federal funds, more so than any other team in the country in any sport, and they're they're packed. So there's just no correlation here. And while I don't agree with Valeni, or I don't disagree with Valeni on his general premise that taxpayer-funded stadiums are, are stupid, they are a loser for the cities, they don't make any sense fiscally, they are ultimate losers for everyone in the state that they come to. No problem with any of that, but Valeni's got to stop this. this. Any fan deeply cares about this, and it's going to stop them from going to a game. Are you going to not go see the Red Wings because of the tax implications, the tax funding that went into it, or are you going to not go see the Red Wings because they stink and it's the low point in that franchise in 35 years? I mean, you tell me, because I don't know about you. I talk to a lot of people that don't go to Red Wing games, don't go to pissing games anymore, and... I don't hear this argument. Maybe you guys do, and maybe you're you're an outlier. But what I hear is Andre Drummond won't shoot underhanded free throws. His team is going nowhere. They stink for the Pistons. And what I hear for the Red Wings is they're stale, they're bland. Ken Holland doesn't know what he's doing. And the glory years seem like they were a thousand years ago. That's what I hear. I don't hear any, you know, complaining about taxes. So you know, Valenti's just all over the map on this stuff. He'll probably be in the winner column next week. I God knows, but. Today, Mike Valeni is the loser, and, uh, you know, what are you going to do, Mike? Maybe you'll get him next time. We do, again, appreciate Darrell Summers, former Michigan State basketball player, for joining us today. Uh, interesting guest and certainly uh, no big fan of Mike Valeni. That was uh, uh, certainly coming through his, his voice, I think, a little bit there. He was biting his tongue just a little bit. Uh, as always, we thank our producer, Jed Schilling, for putting this whole little shindig together. Uh, We will actually be back uh, tomorrow, that'll be Monday, with Tony Paul of the Detroit News. Tomorrow is the trade deadline. Maybe you're listening to this on Monday, so it'll be today. Um, It'll be interesting. You know, there's a lot of rumors going around with the Tigers. By the time we record, the uh, the dust will have settled on that, so we'll know exactly what the Tigers did and where they're going. We'll have Tony Paul in to discuss that. I'm sure I'll have some strong thoughts on that, no matter what they do. Uh, It'll certainly be uh, the official post-mortem for the Detroit Tigers in this era. So look forward to that. Please join us tomorrow. Thank you for joining us today. I am Justin Spiro for Spiro Avenue. We will see you next time.